Well, good morning again to you, Rock Hill. Welcome online if you're with us. Good to see you here with us today on this time change, extra hour of sleep. This is our 9.30 service, just so you know. Uh, if you're like me, I got up in the morning and I, I went to Google, because, you know, Google never lies, and uh, I said, what time is it in Texas, just to make sure that my phones weren't playing a trick on me. And here we are. It's good to be back with you today. Thank you for letting us be gone for uh, a week. Uh, I... It was, it's good to be back, though, I can tell you that. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Esther chapter 7 today. While gone, I, I did a little research on our little friend uh, called Wiley Coyote. Many of you don't even know who this is, so I had to get a picture to show you who he is. There's an old cartoon uh, of Wiley Coyote and the Road Runner, and I learned some things about this beautifully done cartoon. Uh, there are nine laws or nine rules that the cartoon follows. I did not know this when I began to do some research. Just, I was just curious about Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. And I won't share all nine of them with you today because we do have to get to lunch at some point. But I will share four of them with you because I found them fascinating, particularly in line with our text today. One of the rules that Chuck Jones, the creator of Wile E. Coyote, the cartoon, he always followed this rule. This first rule was that the roadrunner never could retaliate against the coyote. The only thing the roadrunner did was made a little noise. Do you remember that noise? It's going to date most of us, but do you remember that? Can we do that noise real quick? Beep, beep. All right, so, boy, you'll do anything. Uh, but uh, we, that was one of the rules that, uh, that, that the, 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 the roadrunner, whatever his name is, he could not retaliate other than making the noise. Now, kids, if you want to annoy your parents, all you have to do is do the beep, beep, and, well, <clears throat> yeah, other things will happen. Number two, another rule, another rule was that there was no outside force that could harm the coyote. The only thing that harmed the coyote was when the Acme products exploded in his face, right, or his own ineptitude, which happened quite a bit, right? I mean, it happened often, but no other outside force. There was no UN that flew in to, uh, to rescue the coyote from himself. There was, no, there was nothing that happened. It was always his own ineptitude or the Acme products exploding. Three, the coyote could stop any time. At any moment, according to the creator, the coyote could cease pursuing the roadrunner. The problem is that the coyote was a fanatic. He had to get the roadrunner. He could not help himself. He was so engulfed in himself, so engulfed in this pursuit, he could not stop. And then fourthly, the coyote was always more humiliated than harmed whenever he failed. He, he was humiliated. You can see that's all folks. I mean, that's, that was the constant just humiliation that the coyote experienced throughout his pursuit. Now you say, what does that have to do with Esther chapter 7? Well, a couple of things. You remember that we're now in chapter 7 of the book of Esther. We sped through pretty quickly five years of the life of the book, but now we've come into a place where there's been a few chapters and we've only covered a few days. There's been a dinner where Esther, the queen, has invited Haman and also the king, three primary characters, to dinner. Haman has been upset for some time. Number one, he does not like Mordecai. Mordecai was the roadrunner in this story, if you will. Mordecai hadn't done anything really to Haman other than not bow down whenever Haman came into the room. And this hatred so spurred within Haman that 
he set out to exterminate 15 million Jews, an entire race of people from the Persian Empire. Simply Mordecai's presence was the beep beep, if you will, in Haman's life, and he could not help himself. So we have some correlation between the coyote and Haman. We also see that nobody outside was causing Haman harm other than himself, just like the coyote. Nobody else was causing harm for Haman other than himself. Haman could have stopped at any time. Haman could have resisted the urge to go after Mordecai, to go after the Jews. He could have stopped any time. But he was such a fanatic, so engulfed in himself, so narcissistic that he wanted to remove any thought of Mordecai and the people of God from existence. But lastly, Haman is humiliated more than anything else in this story. And we're going to see that play out in our text. It's why it bears for us that we're going to be in Esther chapter 7. We're going to read all 10 verses of this chapter. If you're there, will you say word? The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. This is the second dinner that she's invited them to. This is where she asks the question. Once again, on the second day while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to the half the kingdom, will be done. He's very impulsive. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your eyes, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life, this is my request, and spare my people, this is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, spoke up and asked Queen Esther, Who is this? And where is the one who would devise such a scheme? He's beginning to connect the dots. Esther answered, The adversary and enemy is the evil Haman. Well, that made dinner conversation a little awkward. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I'm in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, There is a gallows, by the way, there's a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, Hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's anger subsided. I've titled the message today, Poetic Justice. Poetic Justice. What Haman meant for Mordecai actually ends up being on himself. Haman was conceivably at the top of the world. Haman had the king's credit card. He had the signet ring. He was fully funded in his pursuits. Whatever he wanted to do, he could do to a degree. Haman was the second in command. He, he could make laws and they would get easily passed because he knew how to convince the king to do his own bidding. Haman was the second in command. He was wealthy. He had a family. He had, a large, he had, he had many sons. He had a wife. He, had, he even had friends. 
He was well off. He had the most finest threads you could ever imagine. If this was our day and age, he had a fleet of vehicles. He, he was rich, he was powerful, and he was important. But there was a problem. In the middle of all of this fame, in the middle of all of this wealth, in the middle of all of this power, Haman was ruled by something you cannot see. Haman was ruled by something you cannot see. However, you can see the effects of what he was ruled by. You see, Haman was dominated. Haman was ruled by sin. In the middle of his power, in the middle of his authority, in the middle of his wealth, in the middle of his, his, king, his kingdom, in the middle of all the things that he was able to, to kind of rule over under King Xerxes, under King Ahasuerus, he was dominated by sin. Sin set out to destroy him, and sin was on its rule path. He was ruthless. He was cold-blooded. And when his life had become so consumed with sin, so consumed with deception, so consumed with destruction, it brought him to a point in life where he did some terrible things and made terrible plans. He was cold, he was ruthless, he was vicious, and when Mordecai, just one man, refused to bow down to him, he set out to eliminate an entire race of people, 15 million Jews. He goes to his friends, he goes to his family, and he simply says, what should I do about this man? And they recommend that he kills Mordecai, and he builds a 75-foot gallows. Again, that's twice, almost twice the size of the cross that sits outside of our building. 75 feet tall, and he liked it. So now, not only is he vicious and vile and cruel, Haman now is premeditating murder. This is the path that Haman is on, and he's not even second-guessing it. He was evil. He was sick. He was vile. He was wicked and sin had so entangled its tentacles in his life that it literally will lead him down to a path that he will be ultimately destroyed. Just think about this. Had Haman never planned and lost his anger and never planned to eliminate all these Jews, this dinner would have never happened. The second dinner would have never happened. The gallows would have never been built. But also his life would have not ended the way it did. And just this moment that you think there's no one worse than Haman, I need you to know the same sin that infects Haman infects you. Sin is the worst poison in all the world. Sin takes root in a person and flourishes in that person, and it's batting a thousand. It always destroys the person. Sin destroys your life in the way that it convinces you that there is no sin in your life. You begin to compare yourself to the very worst person that you could ever imagine and say, well, I'm not as bad as them. Sin has its way to deceive you to the point to make you feel like you're healthy when in fact you are overweight or out of shape spiritually. It will convince you that you're on a wide path that leads to health and wealth, when in reality that wide path, the Bible tells us, leads you to destruction. 
And when we talk about destruction, we don't mean that just this life that we live from our birth into our death here on this earth is destroyed. We're talking about an eternal damnation, an eternal destruction that is the result of all those who do not believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord. Sin doesn't just poison you, though. Sin actually changes the way you see the world. Sin has this effect that where you put on some glasses, the sin changes the way you think about everything. Sin puts you on this path where you are on an all-out rejection of God, all-out rejection of God's commands, all-out rejection of doing anything according to his way, but doing it instead according to your way. Yes, sin is missing the mark. Yes, sin is straying off the path, which means you're lost. But the effects of sin have so saturated our culture that there are people groups all over the world that have not even heard the good news of Jesus because of their willful disobedience from generations past. Sin is so cemented down into your DNA that it causes you to live outside of God's ways, outside of God's plans. However, providentially, God uses those things for his glory and your good. Sin changes the way you see the world to the point that you'll think everybody else is wrong and you're always right. Sin causes you to refuse to listen to anybody else and what they think, because you're the standard of what is right. Sin has so tarnished and tainted our view of the world that we'll think we're right and everybody else is wrong. Sin is so poisonous that Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, that sin has seared our conscience. That means that it's been burned And almost to the point of useless. Sin reprograms how you think. Reprograms how you see. It's deception and it's lies and you take them as truth. You end up becoming numb to what is good and what is evil. Think about things a generation ago that would have been repulsive are now just accepted and even encouraged. Think about things that are good and holy that used to be held up in high esteem but now are seen as rude and judgmental. In the book of Romans, which I'll preach on when I'm 50, Romans 1 tells us that every single person is born with an awareness of God God is so kind, God is so gracious that we are aware that there is someone beyond us. God is so kind that you are born with this awareness, but it is our sin that causes over time to do what Paul says in 1 Timothy, suppress the truth, or Romans 1, suppress the truth, or have our consciences seared To the degree that we'll even deny the existence of God. Which is at the height of having your conscience seared. That's why when you're born, 
no matter where you're from or where you're going or what you've seen, the world does have some set of morality that it operates with some natural law that we look around. It's, no matter where you go in the world, killing somebody else is seen as wrong. There's not a culture that survives where killing somebody else is encouraged and said, yeah, that's okay, that's just fine. There's not a culture that exists that where taking advantage of another man's wife is encouraged and seen as a good thing. There's not a culture that exists to where stealing what somebody else has is a virtue. The only way that you can know these things is that you are marked with the image of God. Every person from the womb and all the way to the tomb has the image of God marked by them. And a culture cannot exist long term by just accepting it as the norm to despise those who have yet to be born but also to despise those who are born. Because of sin, our conscience are seared. They're burned. Even to the point where someone could even live a double life. I never knew they could do such a thing, and yet they do it. Sin is vicious. The Bible tells us that you're not just a good person who occasionally does bad things. The Bible calls us a sinful person who sometimes does good things, but even when we do those good things, we often do them for selfish reasons. It's amazing that I didn't have to have somebody teach me how to be jealous. I had an older brother. He was constantly jealous of me. Okay, that didn't land well. (laughs) Nobody had to sit down and teach me how to have anger towards somebody. Nobody sat down with me and taught me how to lie. It just would naturally come out of me as a kid. There's no rule book that you have to follow to go, hey, I I, I just naturally go. People are born with a sinful mark. We call this original sin. You're born with this, and it carries over from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And the goal of the enemy in the garden is the goal of of the enemy today, which is to steal kill and destroy your life. What ultimately happened to Haman was this very simple thing. Haman was not content to have a national holiday where all the Jews would be executed and exterminated. He wanted in his backyard a 75-foot gallows to hang the one man he hated the most. Sin ultimately wanted Haman dead too. Sin left to itself ends always in destruction. And before you start pointing your finger at Haman, you need to start pointing your finger at yourself. Sin will do all that it can to destroy you. Sin will do all that it can to lead you to a maybe a premature death or or a premature figurative death. Meaning, it leads you, maybe to your sin causes you to to die early. Or, or, Or maybe, or maybe it causes you to figuratively die in the sense that you lose things that you were supposed to cherish. Lost a family, or left you empty, or lost your kids, or 
leading you to do harm towards your, yourself or you're addicted to some things that ultimately can kill you, things that will chase you and haunt you down the rest of your life. The destructiveness of sin runs deep. The tentacles of sin choke your life deeper than you could ever fathom. Sin left unchecked is nasty. Sin left unchecked is destructive and leads to all kinds of tragedies. This is why I think what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 is so important. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its desires. See, sin left unchecked causes you to just want to do whatever you want to do. You begin to obey whatever feels right. Sin will take you to the point to force you to obey its cravings. It will take over your life. And I think the great temptation as a pastor is that because we want to help people who are far from God become followers of Jesus, we often will, in a noble effort to be kind and gracious and gentle with others, to overly want to give people the benefit of the doubt, to not offend anybody, but to, to be kind and gracious and, and be, be warm them up, to, to not offend somebody in order that they may follow Jesus. We never actually confront the nastiness of the sin that is in our lives. In an effort to be kind and gracious and gentle with other people, we, we sometimes don't even call out the sins that exist. We talk about everything around the bush, but never actually deal with what's going on. We never actually, as a church, confront the sin that's right in front of us. And listen, the most effective witness for Jesus are not those who want to be holy. It's those who are holy. And when we're holy, the Holy Spirit is so filled us that we can't help but share the good news with those around us. On our trip, I, I like to follow a plan and I like to achieve things and get things done. I had a goal of the things we were going to do that day and we were going we to tackle it. My wife was so wise, she would pause each day and say, there's going to be somebody today that we get to pray with and bless. Let's be aware of who that can be. And the place that we were at it's not the place where you want to stop and talk and have those moments of conversation and pray with somebody. But can I just tell you, almost every day, we ran into somebody that we got to pray with, share the gospel with, and encourage. And I don't share that to boast in what we did. I'm, that's my wife. I, that was not my mindset. My, my, so often, we'll blame our personalities. Well, that's just the way I am, which can be sin. But we've got to have a kingdom mindset to where we begin to see people the way Jesus sees them. Yes, we want to have compassion with you. Yes, we want to be patient. Yes, we want to be kind. But we also need to confront the sin that so creeps among us. As sometimes we might say amongst other men, we've got to man up and deal with our issues, confronting and confessing these issues, taking the issues from darkness and bringing them into light, and not covering them up, or just excusing them, or even being a little frivolous with them, not excusing them to say, well, that's just the way I am, or that's just the way I made, or I just made that one mistake, but to say, no, no, I did that, and it was wrong. Will you forgive me? 
Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies, causing you to obey its cravings and its desires. Sin always takes you further than you want to go and costs you more than you can even pay. It does it every time. When I think about what, what the world needs, when I think about what America needs, I really want to think about what the church needs. Because I can't control what happens in the world. I can't control what happens in America. And I really can't even control what happens in the church. But I can charge the church to do this very thing. God's people must deal with their sin. Confront the sin that we've allowed to just exist. I don't need another day of rationalizing my sin. Justifying it as if this is the way I am. Excusing it as a personality trait. We're really good at saying it's, it's wrong to be bitter and angry unless you've been really hurt. Then it's okay. We've got to have people in our life that look at us and say, hey, that's not right. And don't do that anymore. But we'll pacify things. Instead of getting to the root of the issue, we'll just try to put plaster on the surface. But eventually the cracks are going to return. My 2020 vision was blown out of the water, probably like everyone else in this room. My expectations were a particular thing for this year at Rock Hill, our first year at Rock Hill. There were some things that we just so longed to be able to accomplish, and the Lord said, not today, and maybe not ever. But I had some friends when I wanted to whine about it. I'm not talking about the wine that King Ahasuerus and Haman and Esther were drinking. I'm talking about the W-H-I-N-E. I wanted to have some wine fest about some things. And they would just gently rebuke and correct to say, that's not how you should think about these things. You're thinking about your kingdom and not his. See, here's what Esther teaches us today. Esther teaches us that we must kill our sin or sin will kill us. It's an adaptation from an old Puritan preacher, John Owen, who said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We have to address our sin or it will ultimately kill us. You have Haman and Esther. Haman has deceived the king. He is angry and full of wrath and the, the poison of sin has so infected his life, he can't even see straight. And eventually, that sin leads him down this path of destruction to where he ends in his death. You have Esther, even who did not and was not completely honest with her own husband. But she comes clean and says, these are my people. I am a Jew of whom this man is trying to destroy. And in a sense, she's saved. You see, at Rock Hill, we... We have an, an amazing environment here that you, you can walk in and know I am loved, I am cared for, I am I'm forgiven. I have a group of people that I can confess to and they're not going to run me off. They're, they're going to embrace me and say, we're going to walk with you through this. To say, we love you, we walk with you, we, 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 but you need to know what you're doing is wrong. And we must be humble enough to receive that. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can walk in newness of life. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be forgiven and be healed. And while many things, and most things are just to be confessed before the Lord, James tells us that there's sometimes we need to confess our sin to one another. Why? Why? Because 
that's when true healing can come. You get it off your chest. You you begin to share the burden, and the church comes alongside and carries you along together. You take from what is in the darkness and bring it into the light. In Jesus' first sermon in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, he, he, he says this. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Growing up, sometimes our speaker would say, repenting is turning a 360 degree turn. And I, I would do the math, and I'd end up in the same spot I was in. But it's a 180. It's a turn from what you did. And this is a call to those who do not follow Jesus, but it's also a call to those who do follow Jesus, to say, hey, what you're doing is leading to destruction. It's a wide path that leads to destruction. It's the narrow path that leads to life. The popular path, the path that's just of least resistance, that's going to lead you to a path just like Haman. And the second you think, oh, I'm not as bad as Haman, you've got to look in the mirror and say, no, I could be just as bad as Haman. Repent from the way that you were living and Surrender to the kingdom of God because it's at hand. The kingdom of God means that there's a king. His name is Jesus. And that king rules and reigns. Esther teaches us that we must kill our sin. Our sin will kill us. Now here's the beauty of the story in Esther. Sin has caused such poison and such harm to Haman that he can't even think straight. It ends up costing him his life on a gallow. A gallow in those days was a form of crucifixion. It's, it's as if Haman, because of his own sin, has led him now to his own crucifixion. The beauty of the good news of the gospel is this. that When you and I sin, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin, the payment of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. How does that happen? You see, Haman was so poisoned with sin, so in viciousness with that destructiveness that was in his life, that it caused him to be on his own crucifixion, his own gallows. But for you, when you admit that you have sinned, you come to terms with the fact that you have been a sinner, you have turned From the Lord, you are doing your own thing. When you finally come to a place to admit that, and you believe that only through Jesus you can be saved, instead of you getting on those gallows, it's Jesus who goes to the gallows. Jesus goes in your place. And instead of you dying on those gallows, Jesus is the one who's on the gallows dying for you. The only way you can be saved is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's not you trying harder. It's not you climbing a ladder. The symbol of Christianity is not a ladder. It's a cross. And when you believe, oh, Jesus paid my sin. Oh, Jesus died in my place. Oh, Jesus lived and lives for me even now. You can be saved when you believe that. And then you confess him as your Lord and say, I'm not going to give my my lordship to myself anymore. I'm going to give it to the one true king. You'll be saved. You admit your sin. You believe that only through Jesus you can be saved. Instead of you climbing up the gallows and paying for your own life, Jesus substitutes himself in your place. And you, too, can have life. The invitation is for you today. You may be somebody who's never trusted in Christ. If you never trusted in Christ, you can... 
You can text the number to us that we've provided for you, or, or you can this morning come forward. We want to talk with you. Or, or maybe today you, you've been following Christ, but you're, you've been on a wide path, and it's time for you to repent of the way you've been walking. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll be here at the front if you want to pray with me. We're also going to sing. So part of your response may be saying, it's not God doesn't receive me as I should be. He receives me just as I am. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you now. And Lord, we're grateful for the chance to, to have opened up your word. God, we know the destructiveness and the poisonness of sin. And God, there may be somebody today in this room that is just now being confronted with the destructiveness of their decisions, of the sin in their life. But Lord, we're asking that even now, even now, as the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin, they would respond to you in faith. Father, there's some in this room as they begin to think about their life. Maybe they're online even now. They, they begin to think about their life and, and, and question and wonder and struggle with the decisions they've made. But God, your arm is not short. When we repent, you are right there. So God, we're asking that you would help those in this room that the pride has so engulfed them all these years. That they're too prideful even to confess to you that they need your forgiveness. But Father, for those that maybe in this room need to pray for a, a family member or they need to lift up another or even themselves to you to say, God, heal me, that they would know this place is free for them to do that. But God, help us to respond to you today. In Christ's name, amen. We'll be